21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Are we talking about the future then? Yes. So is is that something that you could share how you think of the future, Richard? Yes, it, that, I think that's probably a very good place to start because it's, it's never a vacuum, it's never a void. And of course, foresight practitioners have developed over the, over the years, over the past 40 to 50 years, I suppose, the practice of foresight has developed into quite a strange mix of art and science. To get away from the giant crystal ball, <laughs> so uh, I can do that and the, there are a few essential frames that we use in order to understand where to focus our interests and where to begin an I- with an idea I suppose the first is to find a, the good, a good question to ask because there is so much change in the world and so much knowledge that is unknowable at the moment that will become knowable in in due course. So the the key for me is finding the right question to ask in any particular context. So perhaps you could share your your question or questions that are the right ones for you at this point, if that's okay with you. Uh, the, the, The right questions concern really trying to fathom out what on earth is going on. So if we take an example of the changing climate, which started with a vocabulary around global warming, and then it changed, the IPCC changed it to climate change, which was all very vague. More recently, it's become climate crisis as people begin to realize, and the scientists begin to realize Uh, in fact, that they underestimated the speed of collapse. And now the the real question concerns not just climate, which is part of a, actually it's part of a much broader and more existential question concerning a global ecological collapse, where we're losing species at a rate uh, which is unprecedented. And there are things happening that only begin to make sense when you join all the dots together. So for me, the real, the real questions can, in that context, in that framework, are all around where on earth can we start to make sense of what is happening? And what responses then should we be taking as a species either to mitigate or to adjust or adapt? Uh, you know, what, what should be our behavior? What should be our response to what is happening? So, so it's a fairly, yeah. uh, Stephen, it's a fairly open question. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm wondering whether Bruno Latour is a particular point for you in, in, in the conversation. That is he somebody who you rate and follow and, or, What's your take on Bruno? Uh, He would be one of them. There are are so many. Um, uh, Arturo Escobar would be another, as would D'Souza Santos. 
Uh, and so thinkers like that, certainly, who are trying to think beyond the, the current horizon uh, and the, the horizon in the current paradigm, if you like. So what, what we're trying to do is ask questions that will lead to an inquiry that allow us to step into new epistemologies. Ecosystem epistemology. Yeah, how, yeah, how, sorry, go on, Mark. No, no, I mean, uh, I as a cybernetics, second order cybernetics uh, student, we are talking, we are learning about ecosystemic epistemology. So most of the science is still immersed into linear one, A yes. to B, and most yeah. of people still don't use holistic way of thinking, not to mention ecosystemic epistemology. That that was just my note. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, guys. No, just it's a good, a, good, a good intervention, Martin. Uh, however, uh, episteme, is there like multiple epistemes, Richard? Yes. Yes, I mean, we live, I believe, in a, a pluriverse, a pluralistic universe. Not, uh, and the, so one of the things that I'm very concerned about it, when it comes to ontological design and that ontological design brought to bear on the most life-critical systems that are failing at the moment, uh, my major concern is that we don't just walk into homogeneity, that we actually look for, I, I call it polyocular views of particular issues and systemic failure, so that we begin to design for everyone, so the world works for everyone, um, each to his own uh, needs, uh, depending what those are. Um, and, and I think one of our failings, actually, in the civilizational model that we're using at the moment is this gradual move towards standardization and homogenization and fewer and fewer languages, a monoculture, if you like. And one only has to look at industrial agriculture to see what monocultures actually do uh, to the system of food production and soils and earth. What about um, learning how to learning, Steve? That's your topic, and I'm sure Richard is immersed into that topic as well. People need to learn how to approach on a different way to the same issues. So yeah. if they approach well, at the same well, way. The starting point is that one needs to be open to a question in the first place, which is what Richard started with. Some people yes. aren't particularly open to questions. Yes. They think mm. they already know, which of course, if they don't know, is ignorance. Uh -huh. yes. Which we see a lot of today. Would it be helpful for me just to step you through that process? <clears throat> because we start with that question. It might be helpful for you to understand the kind of process that we use, kind of standard, uh, I, I think. Is, is that Absolutely. Okay? Absolutely. Okay. So when we've got a question, and that question can come from every, any, anywhere, it can come from a client, it can come from a government, it can come from our 
curiosity, our own curiosity. What we then do <laughs> is use uh, an algorithm which we've been developing over the past, oh, I guess 18 years now, if, it, if we go back to the very beginning. Uh, this algorithm allows us to scan literally hundreds of millions of documents that are available in the public domain online uh, around that, that question or, or that question broken up into other bits. And we usually get back some kind of raw data, perhaps oh, anywhere between 25 and 30 pages that, that can be uh, information, it can be maps, it can be models, diagrams, scenarios, more questions, uh, insight, <coughs> quotations, whatever. Uh, and that when we've got that, we begin to sort that raw data into themes. Uh, and usually we try to min min have a minimum of three or four and a maximum of about eight, just in order to, to, to have some kind of um, container. Uh, when we've got that, we send it out to our, what we call our trusted sources around the world who are on every continent. These are individuals from all walks of life, uh, not necessarily futurists. They can be in academia, they can be in business, but we've, we've built up that network over the past quarter of a century and we trust their uh, observations. Those responses can be further insights, uh, analysis, uh, references to other material. So what we're doing is actually accruing uh, a, a more depth, uh, if you like, and breadth around the, the questions. Uh, when we've done, when we get those back, we then start crafting more or less classic scenarios, uh, but not by a two point two by two matrix. We we try to be more uh, ingenious than that. Uh, and then uh, if we see um, a particular event or development um, uh, product, it doesn't matter really what it is, if we see that seeming to occur at different levels, but right across all the stories we've got, we kind of try to make a prediction about what that could mean. Uh, or at least look at the possibilities of what that could mean and uh, raise, uh, bring that to the attention of our client, whoever the client is. Uh, Richard, it might, if I don't interrupt you, but I was just thinking it might help to illustrate what, what you're saying with an example or two, if that would be okay with you. Yeah. Um, the, the one that I'm always asked about is a classic... Um, uh, prediction that I was making um, in or well, actually culminated in May 2005. I'd been invited to New York to give an address to some leading bankers in the US about the future of the global economy. And we looked very closely, my team and I looked very closely at uh, the factors that we in one screen and one story that was raising alarm bells about the potential meltdown of uh, financial services in the US. 
And then we, we went into it further. Uh, we realized that the ramifications could be global. And we actually made the prediction that eruption. We, we had a, if you like, a map, it, it, uh, a relationship diagram of a number of factors, and there were about 30 in all, um, including a lot of the very complex uh, financial instruments that were being devised, like credit default swaps and, and the like, and related it to other things. So we're trying to join the dots, if you like, to make a case for the fact that there needed to be some kind of structural intervention in the banking industry, in particular in Wall Street, if we were to avoid some kind of financial crisis. Uh, and so that's what I was presenting. And lo and behold, of course, three years later, indeed, um, almost to the day, we, we had that. So it's that kind of work. Excellent, excellent. Did you, did you develop your own application or are you using systems like IBM Watson or, or something like that? No, we've developed our own. Oh, beautiful. Great. From the scratch? Yes. So it's, yeah. it's like an analytical? It, does it have uh, some AI aspects? Yes, it's AI-driven. AI uh, yes, absolutely. What two of you are thinking? Is is it a relevant topic? Is it interesting to share with audience to, to just tell them something about technology or they are not interested into technology? They are basically interested in Well, I wouldn't imagine that we could have this conversation without a, an interest in technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense since the future is definitely going to be technologically driven. It is. And, and what we're heading for at the moment, of course, is with the potential for 5G connected to the Internet of Things and sensors embedded in everything, we're, we're actually headed to a new revolution. Uh, and we're close to this. We're, we're close to this with in the, the near future, two to three years, probably. In fact, I will be talking to the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, or of CFOs, uh, both in the US who are coming to Asia and in Asia and Shanghai next month about the future of investment in that field and, and what they need to be looking for. In terms of, uh, the, the so do you, do you know Peter Diamandis? The future is nearer than we think. His book is coming out. And uh, I don't know and... Peter personally. I know Ray. And I, I think you know Ray. Yeah. 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 Is it based on facts and figures or is it feeling as well? I mean, a hinge. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe a question is stupid, but as you told in step four, you give the raw data to trust the sources from all around the world. So they are only analytic, uh, on analytical oriented or, or are there any philosophers as well? Well, oh, yes, Ray, Ray Kurzweil, for example, who we mentioned, would be no doubt, I would assume he's one of your sources, one of the great uh, thinkers on the convergence of technologies. Yes, yes, an important one as well. Although, I mean, he's a, 
he's he's very much a positivist uh, technocrat, but 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 nevertheless, yes, he's nevertheless, he's, a, he's an interesting dude. So so there is there is a, a special relationship between technology AI and people and their thoughts their unpredictable way of thinking and experiencing and feeling I think is it a mixture of yes very intimate uh-huh uh, uh, and it has to be of course because at the moment we're all pondering uh some of the major questions facing us are around the ethics of coding AI and especially not AI particularly but we'll in, a, in perhaps a decade when we have to deal with artificial super intelligence um, and the ability of machines to do their own coding and their own learning and development uh, you know we have to very think very very carefully ahead of time about how we should be interacting with machines so uh, a question for you, uh, Richard, what, what's your take on the debate about whether uh, super intelligences are going to be human friendly or not, and whether we can in any way shape the outcome of that question? Yes, it's, a, it's an interesting bifurcation, isn't it? That um, <laughs> the options, I mean, uh, one has to be optimistic that we're, but, um, Stephen, the, one of the questions that dry, has driven the Centre for the Future is the question, are we wise enough to survive our own success? And, uh, and I, depending on the day of the week, I'm very divided on that question. I mean, some days, uh, if I have a full stomach, I'm very positive and optimistic uh, that we're going to be wise enough and smart enough uh, to do what needs to be done for machines to be human friendly. On other days, I think very differently. And I think a lot depends on the, the decisions we make over the next two to three years, to be honest. Well, actually, the, I, was, I was going into that, that direction, that center uh, for the future and similar organizations can be a bridge of integration between AI and humans and, and our society and our civilization. The Center for the Future has a very specific um, remit. Mm -hmm. uh, and you could, generally it doesn't sound like it because we want to create a world that works for everybody. But in our terms, that means looking very closely at the life critical systems that are failing us at the moment or failing most of humanity, working only for a few. And we identified six theatres of human activity where we wanted to um, look closely at the current paradigm to see if we could design differently. So if you take the, those first uh, projects, for example, my vote was an attempt to use modern technology to redesign democracy because democracy is in a shambles it's not working anywhere in the world um, and so what we did we analyzed very closely in a forensic way actually we analyzed what was going wrong and why uh, and tried to design an application that would remove the 
all, all the problems that are in the system at the moment. Uh, so we, we, we went to technology in the sense of using uh, a blockchain enabled smart app, uh, app on a smartphone. Uh, we tried to get to a situation where people could vote on any issue at any time of the day or night, um, any, on any matter that concerned them and that was in front of their parliament or senate or, or house of reps or whatever it is. Uh, but also move away from ideal, uh, the kind of binary Cartesian thinking of ideological separation of left and right by educating um, people before they voted on the likely consequences of voting a certain way and trying to move them, trying to shift them to see the world in a more, in a more, to, actually to embrace complexity more by moving out of that duality. Uh, that, that's what um, my vote is all about. It was tested, uh, what is about, it was tested um, in the Indian elections a couple of months ago and acquired about, in one part of India, acquired about 5 million users of our app uh, it'll be tested further in the next federal <coughs> in Australia. Uh, but in the meantime, we're just um, re refining certain things and uh, developing the technology. Now, Horizon State, in our business model, uh, we don't have anyone funding us, so we need to be self-funding. The reason for that was having spoken to so many very wealthy people, uh, I realized that, and I know, uh, I know a lot of them personally, um, whatever their inclinations are in terms of philanthropy, very few of them understand second and third order change. And the, the, mostly they give their money, understandably, to first order change, which is what they can see, what they can get involved in, what they can feel good about, and let others know, their, their friends and family know that they're doing just that. Uh, so we, we realized we had to be self-funding. and. With every project, we will be. With my vote, we set up a, a new entity called Horizon State to develop the technology and then manage it's an arm's length entity. Uh, so this is where your entrepreneurial thinking comes in as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the, the idea was that uh, Horizon State would fund uh, in it through the crypto space, the uh, the um, capital we needed for development of my vote. And when we, li we listed Horizon State, uh, when we first listed, it was on the Korean exchange. Overnight, it was capitalized to the tune of about 100 million US, just under that. Uh, and those guys are busy working now at, at developing uh, their technology in a broader sense. The, the next project that we're looking at is called Operation Peace Quest. And that's in the, the theater. I remember, remember I said six theaters. Mm -hmm. We're still in the theater of power and governance. How, how power is exercised, the whole issue of ownership, mm -hmm. um, all of those things. Um, and one of the things we wanted to do was try to um, reconfigure military organizations to wage peace. Uh, yes, practice for war, that's fine, or conflict or whatever they do, but increasingly to allocate their budgets to waging peace 
through uh, coalitions of, um, of engineers, if you like, who could work together on uh, important projects around perhaps sustainability in Africa or whatever. whatever. Uh, we're working on that at the moment, uh, very early days, but we're getting traction of interest at least from about five military organizations around the world, uh, mostly because uh, mostly because we want to focus initially on the most complicated uh, of issues where we've been looking at the Middle East. And um, so because of that, we're fairly selective about the kind of military organizations we're approaching at the moment. And they're not, they're not from the countries that are most involved with interference and intrusion in the Middle East, for obvious reasons. So that's that's uh, that's second. So you have six theaters. Yes. So you you mentioned two two of them or three? Just a second. Know, power, power and governance, because democracy and what we're trying to do there, uh, and that's leading. That, uh, my vote is actually leading to new thinking around um, a different kind of political system entirely. So that's within the power and governance mm -hmm. bucket, if you like. Uh, the others are uh, technology and innovation. That's one. Um, economics and production is the third. Uh, learning and socialization is the fourth. Communities and cultures is the fifth. And landscapes and ecosystems is the final one. Uh, and so what we've been looking, uh, we've been looking at all of those, if you like, as frameworks within which we might uh, operate. And we're still working out how to do that. And in, in some instances, it's meant support in terms of strategic thinking or consulting, for example. Uh, there is a, a small company in the UK called River Simple that's developing a hydrogen uh, mobility system when and obviously a car is at the heart of that but the whole system is a reinvention of of production and uh, economics around mobility uh, and we've been giving them strategic advice uh, rather than uh, rather than trying to start something ourselves but the whole notion of a hydrogen economy intrigues me uh, mostly because i was working as a consultant for bp a few years ago, and we were working then uh, within BP at the the opportunities for developing a hydrogen economy. What's your time management, Richard? <laughs> I mean, you have so much projects going on. Do you have a team of? Okay, so you have like uh, trusted sources follow from all around the world, but do you have like inner circle team? Okay. Do you have organization? Or yes, <laughs> I yes. mean it's it's yeah. a lot of work. Yes, we have an organization uh, and uh, it's not a usual, I mean, it's a networked organization, it's virtual at the moment. We've got a kind of physical home at PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC in Australia, in Melbourne, uh, but we hardly ever use it. 
except for when we, when we are starting a new project, all of the analysis comes from using, I don't know what, what you would call it, but it's an immersive environment. We use Cave 2 at Monash University. We, we have used Arizona State University's uh, decision theater, um, that, that kind of environment where we can actually visualize the patterns in complexity uh, and go to a level of granularity that you wouldn't normally get to in normal discourse. Steve was most of his life uh, university professor. So Steve, please jump in. Um, is it a model similar to university being able to research? You need to make projects uh, to get some money, fund your research. Now, universities are silo-oriented, and this is... But they, are, but, they are, but universities are also doing uh, projects for money, yes? So they can finance their <laughs> operational and other, other expenses. What, what I'm hearing from Richard is that he's far more entrepreneurial than most universities are able to be because the governance of universities are very restrictive in terms uh -huh. of projects that they can support. That's very true. Uh, I've tried to steer clear of universities all my life. I failed on a couple of occasions and escaped as soon as I could from their clutches. Yes, yeah, so I, got, I got out as well and moved into <laughs> therapeutics from <laughs> academics. <laughs> And, well then and then into entrepreneurship. <laughs> <laughs> well done, indeed. I, and, but the, what is staggering is I'm a fellow of the World Academy of Art and Science, which, as you probably know, was, was started by Einstein and Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. And it's supposed, I think it's limited to about 650 fellows at any one time. And I tried to get them interested in what I was doing. And I found them, my own academy, more bureaucratic, in fact, than the universities I've worked at. Doesn't surprise me. I, I was surprised and very disappointed. Yeah, it is disappointing. So how do you fund your, your, your research, your well, projects? Well, he said with Bitcoin. With, <laughs> with... We actually used Ethereum for um, Horizon State. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the crypto space is very, very interesting, but our business model is, and I can send it to you if you're interested, but it's- By all means. Uh, it's, um, it's fairly interesting because I, 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 the, the center itself is fairly lean. So the, the Center for the Future team as such is, is a very few people. I mean, it's about, um, Oh, I think it's only 12 people, um, mm. uh, which is different from when I had the Hames Group years ago. We were headquartered in Chicago and our research team at that stage was, well, we had 21 full-time researchers um, and, and they would spend, so I would allocate two researchers full-time if I was going to give a keynote on anything to do with the future. They'd work for two weeks probably researching that for me now I can use our own algorithm uh, to, to do that work in minutes. The business model is not necessarily crypto. The business model is, here's a project we want to do. How can we use the IP that we will be developing in that project to fund 
that project. Oh, okay. And, and so there's always a not-for-profit start and then a for-profit entity that allows us not just to fund that not-for-profit, but also a uh, center for the future itself. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm asking that kind of questions as well because we are talking about the future and I suppose your way of thinking and uh, model designing is futuristic as well. So money, cash flow is a bloodstream and yes. your way, so that's, that's the reason why I'm asking that kind of questions. Yes. Because without, without, uh, without uh, blood in the system, you, you cannot have the system. Okay. No, that's right. And uh, how are you satisfied with the level of, if I, coaching question, from one to 10. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. How are you satisfied with your impact to the world? Do, do, you, do you have, uh, so, okay, it sounds absolutely amazing that, that you have speeches in front of all those uh, people, corporate people and people from finance sector and oil industry, etc. But on, on a global scale, so because of the species that, that are dying and because of the, the, all, all the, the issues and because of the stupidity of the most of, of the, <laughs> of the hu uh, human beings not, not being in awareness, not knowing what awareness is, not, uh, not having anything to do with the commitment, with, you know, not knowing what the GEA is, that we are part of the ecosystem, that, we, that uh, the earth is uh, like our mother and et cetera, et cetera. So we still do not have that mixture uh, uh, between uh, entrepreneurship and, and awareness. True. Awareness there's of all, the context. So what comes to mind as a question that I have for you, Richard, is um, your paradigm shift. Um, exactly. What, what is the paradigm that would be the paradigm that you could see as bringing us forward into a future that would have a future for the human species? Yes. Beautiful question. A very good question indeed. Beautiful. And it's, the answer is, um, it, it's easier to to understand and know what we don't want it to be rather than what we want it to be. Uh, and it's the, you know, going back to Martin's original query at the start of this little bit. Uh, I, I don't think at the moment we're making a dent, even the smallest dent in the consciousness of uh, humanity. I mean, we are with certain groups, there's no doubt about that, and certain individuals. But you, you know what Claire Graves referred to as that leap of consciousness, consciousness needed to get to a level of awareness where we could actually see what we were doing to each other and to the planet. I, I think we haven't found a way of doing that. We haven't got the language to do that at the moment. And one thing that really, of course, gets in the way is, um, if, if you know uh, a book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, uh, very, very interesting because he's proven from, from a cultural psychologist's point of view that intuition or instinct comes a long time before rational reasoning and logic. 
So while we, for example, would probably reach for reasoning and logic and information and data to say, look, believe it, you know, this is actually happening. And in fact, it's been happening for such a long time. For most people, their intuition hasn't got to the stage where they can let go of their intuition and, and, and embrace the reasoning. So that, that's a real problem for us. And that, that's your field, of course. That's, that's the human development field. When you speak with all those people from from big corporations, uh, what's your experience? Uh, is their energy just? Is, are they just playing the, the the corporate role, or are they uh, acting as a human beings as well? Uh, both, actually. You may know the name Nick Gowing, or if you don't know his name, you probably if you've stayed in a hotel in the past five or six years and switched on BBC World, you would probably have seen him. It was, he was the senior news anchor for BBC World. And he's a very close friend of mine and a, a trusted associate. And for the past four years, he's been interviewing every leader in the world, every incumbent leader he could get hold of uh, in governments and in corporations. And the research has been extraordinary. Uh, to, to a person, they're all scared of what is happening. They know what is happening, they're scared. They don't know what to do about it. If they did know, one, if they did know what to do about it, they wouldn't even have a clue as to how to start going about doing something. And so we're, we're in this um, existential crisis of incumbent leaders traumatized by the knowledge they have and yet seemingly unable to break out of that trap. So it's like we're trapped in a prison of our own invention and unable to take that necessarily leap, necessarily leap of consciousness that Gray's referred to. Now, having said that, with some people, and I mean, I can refer to um, individuals, the, the guy Paul Polman, for example, who until recently was the CEO of Unilever, um, extremely sensitive to what his company needed to do morally, from a, from a moral narrative point of view, and actually stood up to his board and other stakeholders and said, if you want me a CEO, this is the way it has to be. So there are people like that with the strength of mind and purpose and moral compass to get that across. But at the moment, it's very patchy. There are very few of them. So in terms of me, what I try to be is a Trojan horse because um, if, if you look at some of the videos on my website, for example, they, they tend to be very popular, uh, popular media, uh, but that's a way of my, my getting a toehold. And once I've got a toehold and they're interested, I can start talking about other stuff uh -huh. and deeper stuff. So I regard my role as very much a Trojan horse. From social. beneath, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is it a disruption or is it an organic 
grow, organic change, organic transformation, or it's, is it the it's combination? Disruptive. It's disruptive. Everything that we're talking about speaks of disruption from the norm of what we're used to in the past. So just a second, guys. So people are afraid and we are talking about disruptions. So we are pushing them to, to their limits. We are pushing them to well, their... No, they, they, it's way beyond any limits that they were comfortable How can with. we change them if they are in, in red zone, if this comfort zone? Good question. You're a psychotherapist, so I, I know why, you know why I'm asking you that. Yeah, that's the 64,000. Well, this is fight or flight freeze and they're frozen. Yeah, I know. I know. These are deers in a I'm headlight. a coach as well. So. How, do you, how do you ask a deer in a headlight to, so not to worry, you know? Well, one of the things, I come to this immersive environment that we use for analysis, which I mentioned. We also developed a piece of IP because we, we were grappling with exactly this question, uh, mostly with small groups of stakeholders, clients. Um, and we developed a, an experience, which, which I call wayfinding, which refers to the Trukhazy navigators of a thousand years ago, uh, of how without any contemporary tools, they could just use the wind, the sound of the wind, the stars, the sun, the moon, to actually navigate over enormous distances. And we developed a piece of IP uh, called, initially called strategic navigation, for particular clients. Uh, and then when we got in the immersive environment, we were able to develop a process, a structured process, it's unstructured actually, a, a guided process of discourse, uh, which allowed us to deconstruct, or we were given permission to deconstruct the the, the belief systems they held as a group and individuals try to inject new information or data or even feelings, intuition, and then reconstruct belief systems that would actually give them more opportunities to see, um, can't remember the term now, but when, in terms of optics, when you've got, uh, you know, normally we focus on what's in front of us, but when we've got... <laughs> Blinkered vision when you got 360. Yes, that's right. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so that when they came into the world of design, <clears throat> back from out of the mental space, they were able to, what I referred to originally, step cautiously, certainly, into new epistemologies and see design differently. Now, in terms of entrepreneurs, this is where I would like to take the entrepreneurial community generally to give them that kind of wayfinding experience because i believe the ingenuity we have as a species is so undervalued to be used on just improving you know a pen or a smartphone by making it 5g from 4g or, or, or three cameras instead of two i think we're wasting a lot of time and a lot of talent instead of collaborating on the things that really matter to civilization as a whole.
what's the break-even point? What's the percentage or what's the impact that you, you think you need to have to make that switch, to make that quantum, quantum leap? Because if, so, you, if you target just, if, if, if you understand my question, yeah? If you target just some, or do you, do you target a, a, a thought, leader, a thought leaders group that, that can then spread the word to, to their communities or do you develop your own? It's a very good question. Uh, if, if we look at that, I mean, I think we have to use various channels and various means for raising people's consciousness about possibilities. And at the moment, I'm focusing on the young generation particularly for two reasons, because I'm very optimistic that they will think differently from my generation. And also because I have 10 children and 15 grandchildren. So it matters to me personally that I help uh, in a small way to create a, a better world uh, and a more sustainable world for them. Uh, but so, so I think it's not one thing. I think it's a whole variety of different things that will eventually get through. But also all the thinking I do is in what I call an expanded now. Because, because as we know, time doesn't really exist uh, in the quantum world. You know, it's you know, it's 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 a crazy concept. Uh, but what I'm trying to do is slow down the now sufficiently to examine it differently within the context of the deep past or deep history, if you like, and the deep future. It's especially important when we are trying to solve problems today if we don't understand what, how those same problems or similar problems were tried, uh, solutions were tried and didn't work, or perhaps some did in the past. That's why indigenous wisdom is so important to us today, because it reveals things that we've forgotten or, or lost contact with. And so in this expanded now of uh, thinking, what we try to find are clues as to ways we can raise the consciousness of people. Um, and what I'm looking at, I, I also have developed another algorithm uh, for use in what I call um, systemic acupuncture. And you know what a, what a ne needle does in the right place on the human body with acupuncture. So when you look at complex systems, if we can find the most benign but most effective acupuncture point that would change the energy of the system yeah. instantly, um, then, then they're the kinds of things I look for. That's, that's why I'm not just choosing systems that are failing, but I'm deliberately going to failing systems that could be exponentially important in terms of increasing. <laughs> so mapping the now. Yes. Uh, Martin, I have to f excuse myself. Thank you for your kind words. And Richard, an honor and a privilege to meet with you. And with you, delight, and we'll remain in touch. So for 15 years, I was learning how to approach to uh, specific uh, groups of people and to speak with them about personal development and to help them in their transformation, not to... A step to their ego too much and not to uh, communicate on the way that they will not understand. Mm -hmm. Now we are talking about very complex topics. 
yes. and and you are trying to to make an impact to the whole society basically so yes. Uh, did you think about the language? What kind of abstract terminology do you use? How how do you translate your your way of thinking to a language that they can understand? All right. Uh, let me just. Sorry, I didn't finish on the because the the previous question. You'd oh, ask, okay. Sorry. Continue. You'd ask me how many people will it take? You know, what's the critical mass? Okay, and you spoke about uh, uh, acupuncture. Okay, sorry. Uh, but in the expanded now, so if you go back to the Renaissance, for example, the European Renaissance, if you actually look at the numbers of people who were responsible for the Renaissance coming into being, manifesting, you had the Medici family, you had a few artists, a few thinkers, but in fact, very few people relative to the entire population at the time. So I think what we're talking about today is not an entire mass of people, but a critical mass of thinkers who can convene, um, uh, convene and usher in different possibilities. And, and probably what we're talking about is only a few thousand people, in fact, that really matter. So in terms of sheer numbers, so it's not a lot of people. The language, however, is a real issue. And when we go back to what I was saying about intuition preceding reasoning. So it really doesn't matter what language you use. If you're just using data information that doesn't match the person you are talking to, their moral narrative. If, if it's outside of that perspective, they will reject it. This is why uh, climate denialists, for example, cannot see the science that is in front of them, uh, and why scientists get so incredibly upset about that. It's, it's because the scientists haven't found a way of breaking into that moral narrative that makes sense for the, that constituency. And I was locked horns a few months ago. I'd locked horns with what is an entity in Australia called the Climate Council, because their whole mission, their whole uh, reason for being is to publish or to broadcast the most accurate data they can find on climate science. And I was saying to him, uh, saying to them, uh, this, is a, this is a good thing for you to be doing, but don't believe that you will influence anyone other than people who already know what you're saying is true. You won't. You're singing to the choir. So when it comes to language, what we've got to do, first of all, is try and understand in depth the moral narrative of the group we're trying to influence before we start using data and information and saying, aren't you stupid that you can't see this? So we've got to appeal to feelings and beliefs and values before we bring in reasoning. And that is, that's part of my mission, but it's also part of the problem because it's not easy to do. Spread the word by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. <laughs>